we were discussing yesterday morning the uh, dilemma of God that he has in forgiving man if man should rebel against him. Remember we talked about sin, what sin is and what sin is not. And uh, we saw that sin is a choice. And we make this choice um, freely. There's nothing that coerces us to choose to sin. There may be influences upon us, but when we make the choice, we make it freely. Therefore, we are responsible for it. We are guilty for it. And we deserve to be punished for it when we choose to rebel against God. So God, in his justice, then, must give us the results, the consequences of the law that we have broken. And so when we have rebelled against God and committed ourselves to selfishness, there isn't any, uh, anything God can do except to give us the results or the consequences of our choices, and that is to be excluded from the privileges of God's government and <clears throat> to be separated from him for eternity, which is what we call hell. Okay, let's take another look at this. We have God... Our little chart again. Made man. And man needed what? Government. And the government is expressed in the form of laws. Whoops. Somebody said sanctions, and I started to write it. Laws. And in order to impress upon us the importance of the precept of these laws, the importance of love, because that is the law. We shall love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The end of, our, of the commandment, the end of the goal, the main point of the government of God is that he's trying to get us to love others and love him. And so this is impressed upon us through the use of what? Sanctions. And how do they work? How does God use them? Come, come, speak up. Uses them as an influence on what? On our minds. You are there, after all. <laughs> you, really, you really are there this morning. Okay. And so, for obedience to the law of God, there is what? There is reward, which consists in what? Inclusion in the privileges of God's government. The ultimate of which we call what? Heaven. And then for disobedience, there is punishment. Are you looking at your notes? There is, what, what's the punishment? Exclusion from the privileges of God's government, which is ultimately what we call hell. And so what God does is he takes the sanctions of the law and he directs them to our minds as moral beings and they are an influence on us. He in <laughs> the way I feel this morning too. Um, he influences us towards doing what is right. The whole purpose of his directing this to our minds and telling us what the consequences of the law will be is to try to get us, that's what the arrow is going this way for, it is to try to get us to do what is right, which is to love God and to love others. The reason he tells us, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The reason he tells us this 
is so that it will influence us towards doing what is right. Okay? Now, it's interesting that, uh, uh, the, that Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he did about heaven. He said very little about heaven. He talked an awful lot about hell. He wanted to impress us with, excuse me, wanted to impress us with the importance of loving God and loving other men. Now, see, we need this government and God gave it to us in his love. He said, I've commanded you these things this day for your good. It wasn't primarily for him. It was for our well-being that he gave us this government. He expresses it in laws or commandments. The sanctions are directed to our minds. Now, the problem is that man has rebelled against God. Man has determined to live a life of selfishness in rebellion against the loving government of God that he's given us. And so man is committed to selfishness as a way of life. And what man deserves to receive is he deserves to go to hell. But if God forgives man, then God faces a problem. And that is, how does he forgive man without at the same time weakening the effect of this sanction, on the, the, that is the sanction directed to the person's mind, on the person's mind? How does he keep from weakening the effect of that? Because if he weakens it, then he effectively eliminates his government over man. And if he eliminates his government, then what are we going to do? Because we can't govern ourselves. Okay? We need to be ruled. And God's the only one who's capable. Okay? He's the only one who's worthy of ruling us. The only one big enough, smart enough, wise enough, with enough presence. All his natural and moral attributes are the conditions. And so what does he do if he forgives us? Because then the scripture would read, at its least, it would read, the soul that sins, it may die. Because some people would die and some people wouldn't, wouldn't they? If God forgave some people just because they repented. Or it could read, the soul that sins, it shall live. Okay? Because, well, let me ask you a question. Have you, have you ever sinned? <laughs> Come on, just answer the question. Yes, you've sinned. Okay. Have you rebelled against God? Yes. Are you going to go to hell? Hmm. Doesn't the Bible say the soul that sins it shall die? Hmm. Then what about this law that God said? Isn't it true? Oh. Well, what happened? Okay. The thing is, the law reads the soul that sins it shall die, but for the person who is forgiven and for the minds of those who know about a forgiven person. It's not, it doesn't just affect the person forgiven, but it affects any person who finds out about that, that a person has been forgiven, then the law no longer has the same effect on the person's mind. And so the government of God is effectively broken down through forgiveness. And so what is God going to do in order to be able to forgive man and at the same time uphold his law and his government over man. Well, what needs to be taken care of if God is going to forgive man? You know, we need this government. What needs to be taken care of if he's going to forgive man? The punishment? No, it doesn't. Because if forgiveness means anything, it means that no one suffers the punishment. And in what way? Okay, and what is it that co constitutes the government of God over man? 
It's the what? The influence of what? Through, coming through the sanctions of the law directed to man's mind. That's what constitutes the government of God over man. Now, as I said before, that sounds very fragile, and it has to be, because that's the kind of being that we are, made in the image of God. He cannot govern us by force. It has to be only through influence. So the reason it looks fragile is because we can choose whether we're going to obey or disobey the laws. It does look fragile. It is fragile, but that's because of the significance of our free will. Okay? He cannot force us to do what is right. And so the government of God consists in the sanctions directed to the mind of man as an influence over man's mind to try to get him to do what is right. Remember when I had Wayne stand up here and I told him that I would punch him in the nose if he put his foot down. Okay? That is an influence directed to his mind. I did not hold his foot up. Okay? It's an influence directed to his mind to, that constitutes government over him. Okay? In that sense, I was governing him. I was um, directing his actions in one way rather than in another way. And so what God is doing is trying to direct our actions towards doing what is right, loving God and loving other people. That's the end or the main goal or point of the law. And so what does God need to do if he's going to forgive man? What would, what would work in, in upholding the law of God over man? What does he need to do? Think. What is it that is going to be abolished? Okay, the sanctions are not going to be abolished. That's close, though. Um, the effect of the sanctions over man's mind. God does not eliminate the sanctions. Hell is still real. People can still go to hell. He never eliminates the sanctions. But the thing that's going to be weakened is the effect of the sanction over man's mind. Because when you're forgiven, you know that that's not going to be carried out on you. And so you know there are situations in which a person can rebel against God and not receive the consequence of the law. So then it doesn't have the same effect on your mind anymore. The soul that sins, it shall die. But are you going to die? Are you going to be separated from God for eternity? So then what does that, what does that statement mean to you? The soul that sins, it shall die. See, the effect of that is weakened in your life. And so what does God need to do? <clears throat> what does he need to do? Pardon? No, he doesn't need to make the sanction stronger. It's already eternal separation from God. <laughs> make them conditional. They're already conditional. If you obey, if you disobey. Say it louder. Put a new influence upon the, ma the mind of man. <clears throat> and what must be the nature of that influence? Pardon? I don't understand. No, the thing is we're not going to be more sensitive to the sanction because the sanction is going to be weakened in its effect. If God forgives... The sanction will be weakened in its effect on man's mind. God can't try to make us more sensitive because forgiveness el effectively eliminates that. Keep going. He needs a new influence over the mind of man, but what must be the nature of that influence? Well, God can't guarantee that man will obey. 
Okay, it has to be an influence such that he'll want to do what's right. It will direct him to do what's right, which means what about the influence? That's, that's part of it. It's got to do that as well. Ben? Well, that's involved too, but you, you actually had it. It has to be a good one, you said? Okay, what do you mean by good? <laughs> It has to be a good one. Well, yes. <laughs> but see, but the see thing, that's right, but the thing is you have this too. You have the, the, the act, if you're obedient, you have this reward. And so God, you know, God says that about the law too. So that's there. What do you mean in the context of the law? Well, that's true, but that's exactly what we're asking is what, what, can, what can God do without breaking the law to uphold, fulfill it in what way? Yeah? What do you mean by that? Someone has to die. In other words, God demanded blood. Somebody's got to die. If somebody dies, what does forgiveness mean? That means nobody's forgiven. If somebody has to die, in other words, if somebody has to pay the penalty, I'm not really forgiven. It's just God shifted the penalty to somebody else. God never forgave anybody if he just shifts the penalty to somebody else. New thought for you, huh? I see some shock. We'll get into that a little bit later, more detailed way. If, if God takes the penalty and lays it on somebody else, he doesn't forgive anybody. He just takes out his vengeance on somebody. Very bad view of the character of God. And it's very often taught. It's not your fault. Unless you taught it. <laughs> That's okay, don't worry, I used to teach it. Let's try. Wayne, you want to try? How can God punish what is good? That would be unjust of God. He'd break his law. Not punished, you see? Not punished. That's close, though. No, no, you're close, but you'll see how that works out later. Okay, try again. Yes, yes, yes. It's true. <laughs> yes, yes. It's got to do that. That will have to be accomplished, yes. Yeah, but the, that's true, but this does that too. Um, Even the statement, the soul that sins it shall die, tries to accomplish that. Yes, that's true. But what is what must the nature of the influence be? Well, that has to leave man free. That's true. God has to be just to man's free will. No, no, the que you don't understand the question I'm asking, I think. The question I'm asking is, what must the nature... You, you, you've said, said already that it must be a, there must be some kind of influence 
There must be a new influence over the mind of man because the only way that God has to govern man is through it, that influence. And so what must the nature of that influence be? Yes, it must be, yes. It'll have to be something you can see. The image of the soul that sins it shall die is very graphic. You'll be separated. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. It would have to do that. It would have to present itself to man's mind in that way. It, it, it would be an example too. But let me ask the question a little bit. I'm going to give you a clue now. What must the magnitude, I've been saying nature, what must the magnitude of the influence be over the person's mind? Well, not perfect, but very strong. How strong? No, no, just have one person speak, okay? And speak loudly so I can hear you. I can't hear all this mumbling. Speak up. Well, that's true, but what must the magnitude of this thing be? Superior to what? It doesn't have to be superior. It can be equal. But to what? To what? The other influence. <laughs> okay? The effect of the new influence that God puts over the mind of man must be equal to or greater than, it can be greater than, but it can't be less than, the effect on the person's mind of the soul that sins, it shall die. In order to uphold his government over man, God must replace in man's mind the effect of the influence of the soul that sins, it shall die, with an influence that is equal to or greater than that influence towards doing what is right. Okay, I'll say it again. In order to uphold his government at the same time that he forgives man, God must replace in his government the effect of the influence of the soul that sins, it shall die. The thought of eternal separation from God on the mind of man as a consequence must be replaced in the mind of man with an influence that is equal to or greater than in its effect on the mind of man of that statement. Say it again. If God replaces that influence in his government, the effect of that influence on the mind of man must be equal to or greater than the effect of the statement, the soul that sins, it shall die on the mind of man. And yet it will still have to be an influence. It can't be a force because he can't govern man with force. And so God needs to find an influence over the mind of man that will be equal to or greater than the influence of the soul that sins, it shall die, that is directed to the mind of man if he's going to uphold his government at the same time that he forgives man. But if he can find an influence that will do that, and then there's one other thing that's important. If it accomplishes in man the end of the government that God set out to accomplish. Huh? That's where love comes in. That's where the person has to repent. <laughs> That's where the conditions come in. It must accomplish in the mind of it must accomplish in the life of the person what God originally set out to accomplish through this through this one, this sanction. And if it does that, then God can put the person under a different, the different influence, or if you want to call it, an alternate form of government. Through a different influence, other than the soul that sins, it shall die. And so what God has done is he has provided an alternate form of government 
for man. Now, we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to talk about the dilemma. We've already gotten into the answer. Okay? It's all tied together. You already knew the answer anyway, but you probably didn't understand how it works. <laughs> okay? Now, remember, there are lots of other things to the atonement besides the legal aspects, but we're going through the legal aspects so you can understand why God can justly forgive us. There are lots more things to this. We haven't talked anything about how it affects principalities and powers and all that kind of stuff. See? Okay? But the, the effect of the soul that sins, it shall die, on the mind of man is effectively eliminated if God forgives. Therefore, God must find something to replace that effect, that influence, in man's mind that is equal to or greater than, in its influence, over man's mind, the soul that sins, it shall die, so that... God can still continue to influence the person towards doing what is right, even though he forgives the person. See, the problem is, if he forgives man, then he stops, he stops influencing man towards doing what is right, because he weakens the effect of the law on man's mind. So what he must do is forgive man and at the same time find something that will influence man's mind towards doing what is right to the same level or to a greater degree than the effect of this does on man's mind. The soul that sins it shall die. Are you thinking? You're beginning to get it? Yes? No? See, some of this is new for you because you've heard cliches all your life, all your Christian life. You've not really understood exactly how the atonement works. And so you, you might say, I've heard lots of teaching about the, about the atonement, but you may never have heard teaching about the atonement. You understand? You know what I mean? You may have heard cliches which were enough to get you by, you see? But when somebody asks some really hard questions about why couldn't God justly forgive me without a sacrifice, you see? And then we quote cliches to people that, that uh, communicate things about the character of God that are just awful, you see? Well, somebody had to die. Oh, yeah? What kind of a God is that? You know, God commands us to forgive, you know? He commands us to forgive and release people without demanding payment. Why does he do this? Why would he? Why would he do that then? Why would he demand that somebody die? <gasps> yes. <laughs> That's true. But that you see is only the function. That is the way that it functions. But if God did not do something that would uphold his law at the same time that he forgives us, then he had no just reason to be able to forgive us. He couldn't do that. Because at the same time that he forgives us, he would eliminate his government over us, which means he would hurt us by forgiving us. No, it's not. We'll get to that later. <laughs> the price being paid would mean what? That would mean somebody would either go to hell, which is you, which means no forgiveness, or somebody else would go to hell for eternity for you. Has somebody else gone to hell for eternity for you? Okay. We'll get into that. Just hang on. I'm glad you're thinking. I'm glad you're thinking. Now, the point, again, is that if God is going to forgive us, he must find a way to continue to influence us that is as strong or stronger than the idea of the soul that sins, it shall die on our minds. That's only if he finds a way to continue influencing us and upholding his government 
can He then freely forgive us? See? But it will have to be conditional. Conditional upon what? If the end of the government is accomplished in our lives. Let's say God found an influence that was strong enough to be able to influence you towards doing what is right, see? which He has. He's found the influence, but then your response to that influence is that you reject it the same way that you did the soul that sins, it shall die. Okay? So then what has happened? You've, re you've rejected the only other way that God has to govern you. He has not accomplished in your life what he set out to accomplish. Therefore, you still have to be treated according to the first government. Because you made no response to the to the alternative. Woo! Some new thoughts. You need to think. Get your gears going. Don't be worried if you don't get it immediately, because we're going to go through some other things that'll help you. That has to do with the conditions of salvation. If the person does not respond to the influence, if the person doesn't respond to the influence and submits so that the end of the government of God is accomplished in the person's life, then God is not free, still, he's not free to release the person from the penalty of the law that they justly deserve to receive. Okay, let's take some other things that may be a little um, easier for you to handle. Okay. Um, let's look at the Old Testament the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. The system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Man rebelled against God. That happened in the garden. Man rebelled against God. And then after God gave man a, another writ, objectively stated law, a written law, he wrote it down in stones, took his finger and went, and wrote it out in stone. Even then, when man received that law, as Stephen said, you received the law given by the hand of an angel, written by the finger of God, and you didn't keep it. Even when we received law in that fashion, we didn't keep the law. We know what is right to do, and we have not done it. We know what's wrong to do, and we have chosen to be involved in it. And so when man sinned, God wanted to be able to forgive man, but there was no just way that he could do that unless he was able to uphold his government at the same time that he forgives man. And so a particular kind of influence had to be substituted. Here's where substitution comes in. A particular kind of influence had to be substituted in the government of God so that he could put us under a different form of influence, accomplish in our lives what he set out to accomplish, and then release us from the penalty of the law that we deserve to receive. But only if we're under a form of influence that is as strong as the original one, or stronger, and the end of the government is accomplished in our lives. Okay? Then he can free us from the penalty of the law. But under the old covenant, because, the, because that ultimate sacrifice, which would do that, had not yet been made. It had to be through sacrifice. We'll see how that is in a minute. Because that had not yet been made, he gave people what was called a covering for their sin. 
sin couldn't be dealt with. It couldn't be directly, immediately dealt with. And so God gave them a covering for their sin. And the word is atonement. Interesting where the word atonement creeps up in the in the Hebrew, <laughs> like um, the ark was atoned inside and out with atonement. You know where it says the ark was pitched inside and out with pitch? The word is the same as atonement. Is that interesting? Okay, so the word atonement then means covering. God gave the people a covering for their sins because the offering of animal sacrifices could not take away sin. Hebrews 10, verse 4. The blood of bulls and of goats cannot take away sin. But what God did was he said this. I have given you the blood, that is the blood of animals, I have given you the blood on the altar to make a covering, an atonement for your sin. So what God did under the old covenant was he gave them a temporary form of covering for sin until sin could be completely dealt with. Now let's see why animals couldn't completely deal with the problem. What is the effect on man's mind of the soul that sins, it shall die? The idea is eternal separation from God. Okay? The death of an animal, even though it may be an innocent animal, never done anything right or wrong because it's not a moral being, may be a blameless animal or, or blemishless animal, may be a perfect animal, may be your household pet. You see? And we'll see in a few minutes, it could, you could have even offered your son or your daughter in human sacrifice and it wouldn't have been enough for your sin. We'll see that. A guy proposes that in, in the book of Micah and he says, no, that's not what God wants. Okay, so the, the death of an animal does what to you? It influences you. Here's the, I'll give you an example. Here's the father with his... The father has lied. This is a, this is a Hebrew person. The father has lied. He takes his lamb and, he's, and, and his son in his other hand and he goes to the door of the tabernacle. Takes the lamb, gives it to the priest. Okay? Then the priest says, put your hands on the head of the lamb and the little kid's standing there going... What's this all about, Daddy? You know, and uh, you know how cute lambs are. And uh, he puts his he puts his hands on the head of the lamb, and he says, and the priest says, "Okay, now confess your sin." So he confesses his sin. I lied to my neighbor. I told him something that wasn't true. God says that we deserve to die for that. Okay, I'm guilty. I deserve to be punished for that. But I'm going to turn away from that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then the priest takes out this knife, takes out a bowl, and the little kid goes, "Uh oh." And he says, Daddy, what's he going to do with that? He says, you just watch, son. Takes the lamb, slits its throat, and catches some of the blood. Right? And the little kid goes, ah! What's he doing that for? Well, that's necessary, son. God has said that he'll give us the blood of, the, of that lamb on the altar. When he sprinkles that on the altar and he, and he uh, burns the lamb, that is given to us as a covering for our sin. Now, the thing is, the death of the lamb, the death of the animal, affects the person's mind. But it does certain things, but there are certain things it does not do. And we need to look at that. Okay? <clears throat> it's an effect on man's mind 
but the effect is not great enough to replace in the mind of man the idea of the soul that sins, it shall die. It is not equal to, in its effect on man's mind, the death of an animal is not equal to, in effect on man's mind, the idea of being separated from God for eternity. See? And so that influence of the death of the lamb could not replace in the mind of man, it's not great enough to replace the influence of the soul that sins it shall die. It doesn't have a big enough effect on man's mind. Well, what did the Old Testament sacrifices do? <clears throat> One thing showed the person that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. It is costly. Sin cannot simply be dealt with by being forgiven. Well, that's actually that's number three. I've already given you that. <clears throat> sin in the government of God is costly. It demands something in order that the man can be forgiven without breaking God's law. The second thing is, it shows the man that God's law is valuable. It shows the man that God's law is valuable, has value to it. However, the animal does not, does not communicate to the mind of man because the animal's valuable to the man, right? He has to take something and sacrifice it. He has to give up something that belongs to his flock, right? And, and in that kind of a society, your flock was, um, you know, it was, your, it was your livelihood. And he had to give up something, and it cost him something, and show, so that showed him that God's law was valuable because it cost something in order for God to uphold his law at the same time that he forgives. And the third thing it shows him is that God cannot justly forgive him without breaking his own law. God cannot justly forgive the man without breaking his own law. Now, those are three things that the sacrifices do. They show the man that sin has consequences. They show the person that God's law is valuable. And they show the person that God cannot justly forgive without doing something to uphold his law. Otherwise, he breaks his law. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices are spiritual in nature. They are spiritual in nature. Um, a lot of people have the idea that all a Jew had to do was to kill an animal in the prescribed way and he would be forgiven. You know, in every case with the sacrifices for sin, it says the man shall place his hands on the sacrifice, shall confess his sin. And then if he offers a sacrifice, then he'll be forgiven. Realize that if the man offered the sacrifice but refused to confess his sin, he wouldn't be forgiven. That was part of the condition. There had to be a change in the person. There had to be a change in the person before the sacrifice would be accepted by God to cover his sin. A lot of people don't realize that. That the, that the sacrifices did not pay for sin. You couldn't just offer a lamb and your sin was taken care of. There were conditions that were involved because it had to do with your relationship with God. Relationships are always conditional. Spiritual in nature. In other words, the effect of a sacrifice is a moral influence on you. And if you don't respond to the influence of that sacrifice on your mind, you will not be forgiven. And what is the response that God's looking for? 
confessing your sin, acknowledging that it's wrong, and choosing to repent, which is to start doing what's right, to start loving God and loving others. Okay, now let's look at some scriptures on how the uh, sacrifices are not a payment for sin. You couldn't just offer a sacrifice and be forgiven. That they are spiritual in nature. How is sin atoned for under the old covenant? It is not through sacrifices. We'll see that when we go through. Sin is not atoned for through sacrifice. The Bible says by hmm and hmm. Sin is atoned for. And it doesn't say sacrifice. Okay, uh, first thing we look at is Hosea 6. Hosea 6, verses 6 and 7. Well, really, just verse 6. Hosea 6, 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Is that interesting? God said he'd rather have a person be loyal than offer a sacrifice. He'd rather have them know God than to offer burnt offerings. Is that something? I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 8, verses 11 through 14. Hosea 8, verses 11 through 14. I'm only going to read through 13, but that's the whole passage. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. Isn't that interesting? They offered sacrifices. They ate the flesh. Okay? They sacrificed the flesh and eat it. But the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now, why did the Lord take no delight in them? Because it did not produce in them the effect that it was supposed to produce. They didn't respond to it. And so the offering of the sacrifice meant nothing. We'll see later that it's even awful. God doesn't even like it. <laughs> he doesn't even like it if you offer a sacrifice when you don't repent. The Bible says it's a stench to him. <laughs> okay? So people, a lot of people get the idea that all you had to do was offer a, offer a lamb and that was payment for your sin. But it wasn't. See, the nature of this thing is not a direct literal payment. The nature is it has to have an effect on you. And if it doesn't produce an effect on you, then you're not forgiven. Okay? So the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. Why? Because he says, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. It did not produce in the people a response of loving God and loving others the way God said in his law. And so since it didn't do that in them, he says, I'm going to punish them for their sins. I'm going to take them away to Egypt. Okay, let's look at another one. Micah 6, very common passage, very well-known passage. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord? He means with what sacrifice there. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, 
Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn? Look at this. He's even suggesting human sacrifice, sacrificing his son or daughter. Shall I present my firstborn for for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It doesn't go on to say, but lambs, bulls, and goats, does he? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What God's looking for is the response, not the sacrifice. Even a human sacrifice would not be enough. Even a perfect human being as a sacrifice would not be enough. Because it still doesn't equal in the mind of man, the soul that sins, it shall die. Beginning to get the idea? There's only one being that can equal that in the magnitude of his being. That's where the Jehovah's Witnesses are out to lunch. In their idea that that Jesus, see, the reason they don't believe that Jesus' death on the cross can save us from sin is because Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was Michael the archangel in a body. That's their doctrine. Jesus was Michael the archangel in a body. And even though he was a sinless being, even though he was a, a, a being of great magnitude, still the magnitude of the being is not equal to eternal separation from God because Michael the archangel is a finite being. And eternal separation from God is not a finite thing. Okay? And so the effect on man's mind has to be equal to, in magnitude, the idea of the soul that sins, it shall die. And the death of an angel... The death of a perfect human being is not equal to that influence. It won't equal that in the mind of man. It also causes other problems if somebody else besides God dies for us. It also causes other problems. You would see justice in in God, but you would see mercy in Michael the Archangel. Wouldn't you? You You would see that God is just having to uphold his law, but you would see that Michael is merciful, being willing to die for you. So it's not a proper display of the character of God either if somebody other than God dies. Okay. (laughs) Because you already know the punchline, I can look ahead to that. If you were an unbeliever, I wouldn't do that. Um, 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 Let's go on. Let's look at um, Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 50. There are very few places in the Bible where God becomes sarcastic. This is one of them. Interesting. When God see, And God only becomes sarcastic over the most extreme of issues. And here it was the most extreme because it had to do with salvation. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house nor male goats out of your folds for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. You see that? An animal sacrifice can't even do anything towards paying for your sin because it already belongs to God anyway. You're not giving God anything. 
Animal sacrifice doesn't do anything towards paying for sin because you, it already belongs to God. So he doesn't go whoop-de-doo because you happen to offer an animal. He goes, it was mine anyway, thanks. Okay? Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountain and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Yeah. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? And then look what he offers as an alternative. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. And then verses 22 and 23. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving, not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God, not to the person who offers a sacrifice. It's to the person who orders his way aright that God will show the salvation of God. Psalm 51, which you evidently had some another part of that this morning. Psalm 51, 16 through 19. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. What does he mean, God doesn't delight in sacrifice? God was the one who commanded it, didn't he? The point is that if the sacrifice doesn't produce in you the proper response, it doesn't mean anything. Nothing. Okay? Thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. By thy favor do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices. Notice that? A righteous sacrifice, which means what? The person repented when they offered the sacrifice. In burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. Now, let's look at some... Um, well, let's take one more look at God's attitude towards sacrifices with no repentance. Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. This is another place where God becomes sarcastic. Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. Actually, I think I'm going to read more than that. I'll read verse 8 through verse 20. Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, he's talking to the people in Israel. <laughs> he's talking to the people in Jerusalem. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the, fed, the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Notice that. If you don't repent, your offering is worthless. You can offer a worthless offering to God. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. 
new moon and the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Now, was God saying he was against the solemn assembly? No, but he was against the solemn assembly when people wouldn't repent. Iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. For God to say he hates something. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayer, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. See what he's looking for? Repentance. He's looking for holiness. He's looking for a response of loving God and loving others. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, a lot of people use this verse, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And what they say is the person will be cleansed so that they will be white as snow or their sins will be like wool. They'll be cleansed. It's very commonly used that way. That's not what this means. God is making reference to the, the, um, the illustration of leprosy, which was a red spot. And when the person was completely full of leprosy, they turned white from head to toe. And so God, what God is saying is, though your sins are as scarlet, in other words, though your sins are really bad and they're like leprosy, they are going to become like snow. They're going to become even worse. Okay? Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. So if you don't watch out, he says, let's reason together. Now, if you, don't, if you don't repent, it's going to get worse for you until you're completely consumed. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Okay, now let's look at some principles. Proverbs 15 and verse 8. Uh, where am I? Proverbs 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The sacrifice, Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 21 and verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. Verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? And finally, how is iniquity atoned for? Proverbs 16 and verse 6. Proverbs 16 and verse 6. By loving kindness and truth, Iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. 
by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. It's not through sacrifice. The sacrifice was to bring an influence upon the mind of man that God may be just in covering sin. Now, I want to describe... Well, okay, we've read the scriptures. You understand that it's a spiritual thing that's taking place. And if something doesn't happen spiritually, it does absolutely no good to offer the sacrifice. In fact, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. It bothers him. It grieves him. It hurts him if a person offered a sacrifice and they didn't repent. See? Because what is that? It's hypocrisy. It's, um, anyway, it's an abomination to the Lord. Now, the problem is that the death of the animal was not a sufficient influence on the mind of man to handle the great problems that God had in his government in order to be able to forgive man. What problem did God have? How can he forgive man without eliminating the influence over man's mind of the soul that sins it shall die? He has to replace that influence with something else that is equal to or greater than in influence the idea of eternal separation from God in the mind of man. And the blood of an animal, the death of an animal, the, the idea of blood represents a death. You know, if you prick your finger and you get a little bit of blood, that indicates life. If you come across an intersection where they've had an accident and there's a big pool of blood, it probably indicates something else. See? And so the idea of blood in the... The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, sin means his death on the cross. See? It's, not, it's not a mystical, magical thing, the blood of Jesus. It's a um, moral thing that took place. His death on the cross okay, is accepted as an influence over our minds that is equal to, and greater than, actually, the influence of the soul that sins it shall die, so God can forgive us if we repent. Um, so the death was not a sufficient influence. This is, these are some of the problems with animal sacrifice. The death is not a sufficient influence on the mind of man to handle the great problems in God's government so that he can justly forgive man. The character of God is not fully displayed in the death of an animal. The character of God is not fully displayed in the death of an animal. You don't see all of God's character displayed in the death of an animal. Consequently, it won't correct in man's mind the wrong idea he has of the character of God. And the justice of God was not fully upheld. God expressed mercy under the Old Covenant, but the justice of God was not fully upheld. Do you see why? Because the sacrifice wasn't sufficient. And so, when he forgave people, it says, and his sins shall be forgiven him. When he forgave people under the Old Covenant, he did not have a sufficient sacrifice to be able to justly forgive man. But what he did was gave him a covering for the time being which pointed forward to, in the future, the ultimate sacrifice that would deal with sin. I'll give you an example. Here's a, a Hebrew person comes with his sacrifice to the tabernacle and a, and a Canaanite comes along, an unbelieving Canaanite. He's not been, not been converted. And he comes along, he doesn't believe in the God of Israel. He comes along, he's an idol worshiper and the idol worshippers very often understand sacrifice. They understand sacrifice very well. Okay, so the, the idol worshiper comes along. He understands sacrifice. And um, they understand it so well that they know they need to offer it again and again and again. 
Okay? And the Jew comes, and he's got his lamb with him. Okay? And the Canaanite says, I wish I had two hats. Change hats here. Um, the Canaanite says, what are you going to do with that lamb? Well, God has said that he's given us the blood of the animals on the altar as a covering for our sin, as an atonement. Um, is the death of that thing going to be a sufficient influence on your mind to turn you towards doing what is right? Well, no. No, we understand that, and we have to offer sacrifices again and again and again, and, and sin has to be remembered over and over and over again, because it's not completely dealt with. Remember that? Does that sound familiar? It's from Hebrews 10. They had to offer sacrifices year after year and remember sin. Why? Because it wasn't a sufficient sacrifice. So they had to remember it over and over and over again. And so he says, no, it's not, a, not really not a sufficient sacrifice. And the Canaanite says, then God doesn't really have a right to forgive you justly because he hasn't handled the problems in his government to be able to forgive you, to take away your sin. Well, yeah, that's true. But see, the thing is, God has said that in the future he is going to offer a sacrifice that's like that. We don't exactly understand what kind of sacrifice that's going to be, but he's going to do something. He's promised us. He promised us in the future there will be something that's going to take care of that. And the Canaanite says, well, he'd better do something because if he doesn't do something in the future, he has no right to forgive you and send me to hell. If he doesn't offer a sacrifice that handles the problems in his government. So if he doesn't do that in the future, he has no right to forgive you and cover your sin with, with animal sacrifice and send me to hell because I don't offer those sacrifices and I don't repent. Okay? Even your repentance, even your offering an animal sacrifice is not enough unless in the future God does something that, that does actually accomplish the problems in his government because an animal sacrifice will not do it. <clears throat> and so, interesting, in the, um, in the book of Romans, chapter 3 and verse 26, it says that God had to demonstrate his righteousness. What? God had to show that he was righteous? Yes. He had to demonstrate his righteousness. And with respect to what? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. He didn't have any right to. He didn't have any right to forgive the people because an ult the ultimate sacrifice had not yet been made. But in his mercy, in his forbearance, he covered sin through animal sacrifice if the people would repent and he could forgive them. But mercy was expressed, but his complete justice was not upheld. If complete justice were upheld, he would have had to send them to hell because the ultimate sacrifice had not yet been made. You get the idea? So then God had to demonstrate his righteousness, the Bible says, in the death of Jesus. How did he demonstrate his righteousness? Because Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice that all the people under the Old Covenant were looking forward to when they offered their animal sacrifices. You see? And so he demonstrated in showing Jesus, displaying Jesus publicly as, a, as an offering for sin, as a propitiation in his blood through faith, it says, Romans 3.25, he offered Jesus as a propitiation in his blood through faith, there's a condition, and he demonstrated his righteousness. Now, why did he have to demonstrate his righteousness? Because he didn't really have the right, justly, to forgive people under the Old Covenant. Because all there was was animal sacrifice, and it wasn't sufficient. 
But what he did was he gave them a promise. I will make a sacrifice that will be sufficient so I can actually take away sin and not just cover sin. Okay? The blood of bulls and of goats cannot take away sin. All they did was cover sin for the time being because they're not sufficient. And then he had to demonstrate his righteousness by offering that ultimate sacrifice because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. He didn't have a right to do that justly. But he was merciful to the people and gave them a covering for their sin, which was the animal sacrifices. And then he had to show his righteousness to the Gentiles. See? He had to show his righteousness to the unbeliever by offering that ultimate sacrifice eventually. Okay? So then the thing that's necessary so that God can justly forgive us, set us free from the penalty of the law we justly deserve to receive, can only be accomplished if he can find a way, if he can find a way to influence our minds towards doing what is right that is equal to or greater than the influence of the soul that sins, it shall die on our minds. Now, animal sacrifices, because of the death of the animal, communicated what? Sin is consequences. God's law is valuable or sin is costly. So look at it that way. God can't forgive unless he does something. And so sin costs something. It costs the man something in order to be able to be forgiven. The death of an animal, say, under the old covenant. And what God has done to offer the ultimate sacrifice is it cost him something. It cost him everything he had. It cost him his son. It took the death of God himself to be able to influence us to the same extent that the soul that sins, it shall die, would influence our minds. Now what we have to do is look at what happened in the life and the death of Jesus. What happened in the life and death of Jesus? First of all, there was his condescension. He was God. He was God. Jesus lived, the, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, who is Jesus, okay, who is God, not angel in the sense of uh, the Michael the Archangel or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Who, he who was God, the Bible says, laid aside his equality with God. Now, does that mean he was not God? No. He was still God when he was in flesh. But he laid aside his ability to use his powers as God, and he came and lived as a man. The word in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself, is the idea that he was clothed with power, glory, majesty, and he took all of that and laid it aside. And he did, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but let go of it and humbled himself humbled himself such as to be found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself to the point of being born as a baby. See? Complete weakness. Complete weakness. Put himself in that position of complete weakness. So he humbled himself. He loved us. The Bible says that he became poor so that we could be made rich. He became poor. He laid aside the glory that he had with his father from all eternity 
and the fellowship, the intimate, direct communion he was having with the Father from all eternity, he laid that aside to be born as a man. He was God in nature, even though he was living in flesh. And then he lived, he lived a perfect life. Lived a perfect life. He never sinned. The Bible says there was no hypocrisy found in his mouth. There was no deceit, is another word that's used, was found in his mouth. He never lied, never said anything that was wrong, never did anything. He even said to people, which one of you can convict me of sin? And nobody could. Nobody spoke up. I'm sure somebody would have if they could have. But they couldn't. Nobody could show that he was a sinner. Okay? So he lived an absolutely perfect life. He was God in flesh. That was He, he um, demonstrated that many times so that people would get the point. However, because we are not Hebrews, we very commonly don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> because he says many, many times that he is God, but we don't get the idea. The, the Jews, the Pharisees, very often did. Such as when he said, My son, your sins are forgiven you. Remember the guy let down through the roof? My son, your sins are forgiven you. And they said, This man's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now Jesus didn't deny that. He said, Now which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or get up and walk? Okay? And he says, So that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Which means what? If he says to the man, my son, your sins are forgiven you, that means the sins were committed against him. And that means Jesus was who? The moral governor of the universe. You see? That's what he's saying when he says, my, my son, your sins are forgiven. He's saying he's God. And they got the point. Okay? And he didn't deny it. He said, so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the man. He said, get up, take up your pallet and go home. And the guy did. And why did he heal him? To show that he had power on earth to forgive sins. He showed both by the demonstration of healing and okay, that he could forgive sins, that he was God. Or when he said, I am. Many times he said, I am. Only problem is our English versions put the word he in there. And it confuses us. Right? It says, I am he. If you do not believe that I am he, but it doesn't say that in Greek. What he said was, if you do not believe that I am and he kept saying, I am, I am, I am. You look at the eighth chapter of the book of, yeah, yeah. You look at the eighth chapter of the book of John and you see these places where he says, unless you believe that I am, you will perish in your sins. See? And at the very end of the whole conversation, after he'd said this a number of times, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they took up stones to stone him. Why? Because he was saying he was God. Okay? Or I and the Father are one. Okay? And the, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, they were one in purpose. You see? Well, evidently, the Jews understood a little different way because they didn't go, oh, that's nice that you and the Father are one in purpose. They picked up stones to stone him. And he said, for which good work are you stoning me? Interesting question, huh? <laughs> Because that's all he ever did was good works, you see. For which good work are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work, but because you, as a man, are making yourself out to be God. They understood what he was saying when he said, I and the Father are one. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, so he was God in flesh. 
And then he died on the cross. He knew from the very beginning of his ministry that the purpose was that he was going to die. And his whole life was centered around what? Dying so that man could be forgiven. He understood that as his purpose in life. He healed to demonstrate who he was. Lived a sinless life, demonstrated who he was. Fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and demonstrated who he was, that he was Emmanuel, God with us. But when he died on the cross, he knew that that was what he was going to have to do. And he told the disciples ahead of time, this is what's going to have to take place. Do you realize that even if everybody had believed in him and had accepted him as the Messiah, he still would have had to die? Even if they had accepted him, he still would have had to die. You get that? What would have had to take place? He would have had to ask the very people who loved him to kill him. Because even if they believed in him, there still was no sufficient sacrifice for God to justly forgive the people that that loved him. They would still have to die in their sins. And so Jesus had to die in order that God could be free to justly forgive us, even if everybody in the world had believed in him at that time. There were still the people under the old covenant, and there were still those people that that had sinned that were alive at that time, such as the woman taken in adultery, and the people that brought her because they all knew they were guilty. Well, under the Old Covenant, God could still forgive sins, but only on the basis of the promise that there would be a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the thing is, he still had to have a just reason to do so. But the reason that he had to do that was because he knew he was going to die. So he had a basis for that, because he knew from the very beginning he was going to die. The death of a finite animal can't, it can't, the death of a finite thing can't impress you the same way that eternal death impresses your mind. Okay? <clears throat> so the only being that would have the magnitude of being, of life, of value, only the death of a being such as the being of God, would, his death would influence our minds to the extent that the soul that sins, it shall die. Because the magnitude of the soul that sins, it shall die, is eternal, or infinite, if you want to use that word. And the magnitude of the being of God is eternal and of limitless value. Okay? And so anything else that's created will not equal the idea of eternal separation from God. Only that which is uncreated and has the ultimate value in the universe can do that. And so when we look at the death of Jesus on the cross and the agony that he went through, we look at that and we understand he didn't deserve to die. Now, this is getting to what Wayne said at the beginning. He was close, but he didn't carry it on. He didn't deserve to die. He was completely innocent. He never sinned, never did anything that was wrong, but he suffered the opposition of sinners his entire lifetime, the Bible says. He didn't suffer just on the cross. He suffered the opposition of sinners his entire lifetime. 
And then he died on the cross. And what does he do? He takes the very anger, the very bitterness, the resentment, the rebellion, the selfishness, the envy, because it says that the um, scribes and the Pharisees delivered him up for envy. They were envious of him. Took the very thing, the very sin of man, the very rebellion of man, allowed that to be uh, against him as an innocent person and took that very rebellion and used it through his death as the tool to produce for the forgiveness of mankind. Now, what do you do with somebody like that? What do you do with a God like that? Okay. That's the effect of the cross on the mind of man. When you look at the magnitude of the being who was dying, that was God in flesh, he lived a sinless life. He was completely innocent. No deception was found in his mouth. No hypocrisy. Never did anything that was wrong. All he ever did was heal people, heal the brokenhearted. He spoke peace to people. He said, your sins are forgiven. Um, uh, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This day salvation has come to this house. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. All he ever did was what was good. Most innocent person in the universe. And what did we do to him? We killed him. And he took the very anger, resentment, bitterness, rebellion, and rejection of light that we were involved in. He took that and he turned it around and used it to produce the forgiveness of mankind. Because when that was poured out on him, And he allowed himself as an innocent person to be treated as if he were guilty. Then when we look at that, what what happens to us? We recognize that we're the ones who really deserve to die. Because we're the ones who were selfish and rebellious. We deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die. And yet he suffered as an innocent person. And that's where the substitution comes in. He suffered as an innocent person. uh, He suffered as if he was guilty even though he was innocent, so that we could be treated as if we're innocent, even though we're guilty. His death for ours. Well, what do you do with somebody like that? It has an effect on your mind. And it's the only thing that will have the effect on your mind that can equal, in its effect, the soul that sins, it shall die. And God took the death of the Lord Jesus and he used that to replace in our minds the effect of the soul that sins, it shall die. Because if he forgives us and allows us to go free, are you watching? Forgives us and allows us to go free from the penalty of the law that we justly deserve to receive, then he has eliminated the effect of the sanctions on our minds. Please note, he has not taken away the sanctions. The law is still there. Hell is still there. The sanctions, the consequences are still there. But the effect on man's mind is effectively eliminated when he forgives man of his sins. And so what man has to do is allow himself to be governed by the influence of the cross. The effect of the death of Jesus on the cross, God dying for us, even though he was innocent and we were guilty, and we're the ones who deserve to die, he died so that we could be free. He allowed himself to be treated that way so that we could be free from sin. That was the kind of love that he had for us. He didn't have to do that. He would have been perfectly just if we'd all gone to hell. But because of the kind of God that he is, he did not want to see us suffer. 
he did not want us to be separated from him and so he provided a way for us to be forgiven and it cost him everything he had cost him his son okay and when we look at that the effect that it has on our mind can be equal to the effect of the soul that sins it shall die and it teaches us many many things okay we're going to um, are we no we're not <laughs> how much time do we have okay I want to talk a little bit about um, how it answers the problems the problems that we looked at yesterday God has to be just to his government you remember that God has to be just to his government he has to be just to his character he has to be just to man's selfishness and it has to be just to man's free will at the same time that he forgives man we'll look at those four things before we stop God through the death of Jesus was completely just with his government because he provided for man an alternate form of government and man can be ruled in his mind can be governed by the effect of the death of Jesus on the cross on his mind so that when God forgives man God is man is still under an effect of influence that is just as strong actually I believe stronger than the soul the effect of the soul that sins it shall die you know why it's stronger because this the soul that sins it shall die demonstrates God's justice this the death of Jesus on the cross demonstrates his justice his mercy his love his kindness his patience his wisdom okay? it demonstrates fully the moral attributes of God if you want to go through those that way it demonstrates fully all of the moral attributes of God he put himself completely on display in the life of Jesus and in the death of Jesus he put God on display John 1 18 says the son put God on display and in his life and in his death he put God on display in such a way that he fully demonstrated what his character is like and he, at the same time that he forgives man through the influence of the cross on man's mind he is able to uphold his government he's able to uphold his government because he puts man under an alternate form of government that is the government of the cross and once he forgives you you are no longer affected as greatly by the soul that sins it shall die because you're not going to die are you so that doesn't affect you as much anymore so what does God use to urge you to do what is right I died for you you don't have to submit to this because I died for you even though you don't deserve it I died for you because I love you and what he uses to influence us towards doing what is right to accomplish the end of the government in our lives loving God and loving others is the effect of the cross on our minds you ever notice that God doesn't come along and say the soul that sins it shall die when you sin but what he usually does is he comes along and says I died for you remember that I love you remember that I'm your father remember that I gave my son for you remember that okay. that's what the Holy Spirit uses to govern us and you say isn't that a bit precarious because you can rebel against that too yes it is but that's because the kind of beings that we are God couldn't use force to make us be saved he could only use influence second thing 
is that he had to be just to his character. Now, I've already described how in the death of Jesus on the cross, God fully displayed his character so that when man comes back to God and says, God, please forgive me of my sin, God has a just reason to do it because he can uphold his government, but God also displayed in the death of Jesus his character to man in such a way that the, all the false ideas about uh, God in the mind of man can be eliminated. doesn't mean they'll happen when the person repents. But through the death of Jesus on the cross, all of the false ideas about God's character can be eradicated in the person's life. Okay? <clears throat> the Bible says, Wicked men do not understand justice. A man's foolishness subverts his way and his heart rages against the Lord. That's not fair, but that's the way it is. A man thinks that when he sins, that God has become like him. Adam ran from God, didn't he? Had God changed? No, but Adam thought he changed, and he was afraid of him. God says to the wicked person in Psalms, you thought that I was altogether such a one as yourself. You thought that I was altogether such a one as yourself. The wicked man thinks that God is wicked, as he is wicked. Thinks that he's unjust, unkind. Okay? Because the man is unjust and unkind. But he thinks God is that way. And God, through the cross, can fully display to man what he is like, that he is not unjust, that he is kind, he is loving, he is merciful, you see, but that he is completely just, and he will uphold his law. He will not um, allow his law to be broken in order to forgive man. The third thing is he has to, he's been just to man's selfishness. He's been just to man's selfishness because through the cross, God can have an influence on the mind of man that can break man in his selfishness. Through the cross, God has an influence on the mind of man that can break him in his selfishness and show him you're wrong to be selfish. Look at what I did on the cross. Look at the way I live. Look at what I did for you. You are wrong to live that way. Wrong for you to be selfish. Wrong for you to be unkind. Wrong for you to be proud, hypocritical, rebellious. And so he's just to man's selfishness. And lastly, he's just to man's free will. God can influence man very strongly through the cross and yet does not force man to be saved. Man has to choose to submit to the influence and if he doesn't, he won't be saved. I've seen the effect of the cross on a person's life to the point where they fell on the ground, they were knocked on the ground by God. I think what happened was the person was so convicted his legs gave out from under him. Fell at 16 years old, fell on the ground, and is out on the ground, beating on the ground, God is speaking to him with an audible voice, like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You could tell what God was saying because of the way the guy responded. Beating on the ground, going, no, I won't. No, I won't give my life to you. I won't let you have that part of my life. No, I won't, I won't. Okay? Having a conversation with God. Out on the ground. Now, that's what I call influence. Right? And you know what happened? He hardened his heart. The conviction of the Holy Spirit subsided. And he was still unsaved. And God respected his free will. Okay? You can have that much influence come on you through the cross, and yet it respects the free will of man to the point where you can resist it. You do not have to submit to it. You don't have to love and serve God because of the influence of the cross on your mind. 
but it can be that strong of an influence, and yet it leaves man free to choose whether or not he'll submit to it. Okay, we'll stop.